This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. Somebody introduced you to Christ and you began to recognize your eyes were open and you began to see him for who he really is. Not just a good teacher, not just a mentor, but the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And you called on his name because you knew if you would call on his name, you would be saved. You called on his name and you said, Jesus, I know I can't be saved in and of my own effort. Forgive me of my sins, save me, make me right with God. And you did that. Now, can I ask you a question? When you did that, did God save you? Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. My name's Aaron, and you're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. We're about to continue with Pastor Jeff in his series from Revelation. So far, we've looked at grace and judgment, plus the spiritual battle in our world today. If you missed any of this series, you can find it all wherever you listen to podcasts. In this episode, Pastor Jeff talks about the end of history and being extremely close to God or extremely far from Him. What does that look like now, and what does it mean for eternity? Here's Pastor Jeff now to begin today's message. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. I love uh, extreme sports, guys. I really love extreme. I don't like performing them. I just like watching them. And if I can be honest, uh, I, I know a pastor probably shouldn't say this, but I like the crashes. I don't really watch it for when they're doing well. You wait with anticipation of when they're going to crash. Isn't that terrible? I mean, you do it too, don't People go to car races not to see them go around the track hundreds of times. What do they wait for? When the crash happens. And then they fake it. They kind of go, oh no, but down deep inside they're thinking, yeah. Uh, skyboarding. Think about this. You're plummeting through the air, flips and twists and turns. And then the best part they say is when you let the parachute out the last possible moment, that's extreme sport. Rock climbing. They now do a lot of rock climbing up the face of rocks, uh, just with your hands and feet, you know, in crevices, just trying to go up. Tom Cruise in the movie Mission Impossible. I remember that great scene where he had to turn because he was startled and he was hanging on the rock. Now I know in the studio, probably he was six inches above the ground, but it made us think he was way up in the air. And that's an actual sport, rock climbing. Uh, street luges, street luges, 70 plus miles per hour. Think about this, through winding curves at death velocity speed, man. It's, uh, the crashes are amazing, and that's what we all wait for, if we're honest, we wait for the crash. Uh, how about parachute slalom? Okay, they take you up about 2,000 feet in the air and drop you, and then you start skiing. You hope you hit the right target. You start skiing down the face of a, of a cliff, basically. You gotta be a great skier to do this. Again, we don't watch the skiing. We're waiting for the spectacular crash. And uh, on YouTube, you can just see crash after crash after crash. What kind of sadistic people watch this stuff? <laughs> These are extreme sports. These are sports, uh, people who bike and golf and play bridge and go for little hikes up to the A. You know, these are people who get tired of that and they want to go past the mundane mediocrity. They want to do something that's kind of like death defined. Now, here's the thing about the book of Revelation. We got two chapters left and we're going to deal with what is arguably the most difficult chapter in the book. But so far, you've, you should have seen that this is a pretty extreme book. You've got some extreme pictures. I mean, some visions that are downright extreme. I mean, dragons and beasts of the earth and the sea and seven heads and 10 hordes. And for us, we look at it, we think, wow, that's, that's extreme. <laughs> John 
he knows what the vision represents. In most cases, he knows there are symbols, there are metaphors to describe and communicate a vision that he needs to know that will encourage the people of his day who are being persecuted under the Roman authorities. But it's also, it's also extreme, a book with extreme messages. It says that every person on planet earth is headed to one of two spiritual realities and those spiritual realities are extreme. There's nothing mediocre or mundane about either one. That you're either gonna experience extreme closeness to God or you're gonna experience something that is extremely apart from God and you get to choose. Extreme intimacy with God or extreme estrangement from God. But the problem is where there is no God, there is no good thing. Extreme joy or extreme pain. Extreme love and relationship or extreme hate and loneliness. And the book of Revelation, especially in the Bible as a whole, teaches you that the trajectory that your life is on now will go into warp speed in eternity. So what you say you believe and how you actually live can be two totally different things and nobody really knows except God. And so whatever trajectory you're on now, if if your life now is about making money ultimately and about becoming more and more wealthy and religion to you is just the thing that you do to get what you really want, your real saviors, if that's the trajectory of your life now, then that will go into warp speed in eternity and you'll move farther and farther away from God. And you'll not be able to use God any longer for your means because you'll be separate. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, he will give you the desires of your heart. If you lived on planet earth and you said, I don't need God, I don't want God, and I'm gonna do my own thing, but I do want to use God for my purposes to get my real saviors, money, power, and I'll use religion that way, then God says, I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. But if your passion here is to know God and is to seek God, and to build the city of God in the city of man, and to build the city of man for the sake of the city of God, to not separate, not assimilate, but to permeate the city with the good news of the gospel. If that's you, then one day that goes into warp speed and God will be your God and we will be his people. Now, I've tried my best to help you understand what I believe to be the oldest view of the book of Revelation, the cyclical approach. And we've said that the book of Revelation is six cycles and each cycle tells you the types of events that are going to happen on planet earth from the time Jesus establishes his kingdom until the time he returns. We kept dealing with these numbers and these phrases because if you look at all of world history in seven years, the perfect amount of time, complete amount of time, then three and a half years and three and a half years, then the three and a half years the Bible talks about in the book of Revelation, which is 12, 60 days, 42 months, time, times, and half a time, represents the time between the time Jesus set up his kingdom until the time he returns. And we've seen, if Revelation is truly a cyclical book, then we should expect to see the second coming six times. And we do. We see it after the seven seals. We see it after the trumpets. We see it after the bowls of wrath. We see it after the beast of the sea, beast of the earth, the dragon. We see it after the great harlot. So we should expect to see second coming language, and we do, six times. That's because the book of Revelation is not chronological. It is not dealing with the last seven years of world history. It is dealing with the time between the time Jesus set up his kingdom until the time he returns. And in the book of Revelation, there will be one scene on the play. They will use metaphors and symbols and wipe the stage clean and bring in the new symbols and the new metaphors, but they're all communicating the same message, which is what? You should expect, you and I, the church will be persecuted and it always has been. It's still being persecuted now. There are people who are crucified, burned at the stake, can't get jobs. Their entire villages are wiped out simply because they are Christ followers. Thousands die every day. You're just privileged that you don't have to experience that here. 
You should expect the, the gospel to go out in conquest, the rider on the white horse, and that for Satan to follow. And the church will be persecuted and there'll be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be earthquakes, there will be floods and famines. It will happen in every generation to some degree until Christ returns. And there will be anti-godly governments and anti-godly religions. There will be religious movements that start up and claim that Jesus is a good teacher, a mentor. But in reality, they strip him of who he really is. They de-deify Christ. They dethrone or try to debunk God. And they will look good on the outside because Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He's no dummy. And there will be plenty of people who will be pulled away. But there will be those who remain and who will make it through the great tribulation. So if you've not noticed by now, the tribulation is now, and it has been since Jesus set up his kingdom. There's no great tribulation of a few years happening toward the end of time. We've been in the tribulation. You may not feel like it, but I guarantee there have been plenty of Christians who have. And so now we come to the last vision. The reason people struggle with Revelation 20 is they see it, again, as something that happens near the end, but Revelation 20 is a description of the types of events. It's the last vision of the six before we go to the new kingdom, Jerusalem, the new city, the new city of God. So that means when we read Revelation 20, we're about to read. Now stay with me. It's gonna get loud in here in a second. I'm trying to be calm so that I can have the energy. You're about to read about yourself for those who have been called out. And you're, you should discover a few things, three things about yourself maybe you had not previously known. And so the last vision of the cycle the sixth one starts after the fifth one ends and the fifth one ends by the great rider on the white horse and judgment day happens in the second coming. And then he's, and here's the last vision and we read in verse one of chapter 20, I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now, if I'm suggesting Revelation 20 has to do with the events that are gonna happen in the world from the time Jesus establishes kingdom until the time he returns, we gotta answer a few questions. Like number one, how long is a thousand years? Now we're in apocalyptic literature. This is not a literal thousand years. We don't look at any other number like that. Why should we suddenly look at this as literal? That makes no sense to me. This is a thousand years, 10. Multiples of 10 is the perfect amount of time. What time is this? This is the time when Jesus says, this is the time the church will operate. This is the time in which Satan will be bound and then one day he'll be released and the end will come. The thousand years is the perfect amount of time. It's another way of reflecting 12, 60, 42, three and a half, time, times and a half. It's a thousand years, God's perfect amount of time. And it lasts from the time Jesus establishes his church until the time he returns. Second question, are you telling me, Pastor Jeff, is Satan bound now? Yes, he is to a degree. Matthew chapter 12, they accused Jesus of casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub. <laughs> and Jesus said, that's ludicrous. A house divided will not stand. And then he says this, but if I'm here and I'm casting out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come on you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Jesus saw his work of ministry on the cross as binding the strong man. When you hear binding, you think of totally tied and unrestricted, not, to, not able to do anything. But the Greek word binding is a restriction of some kind. Is Satan restricted now? Of course he is, to a degree. Think about it. In the Old Testament, there was no indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. God sent his anointing on people for specific times and specific occasions, like King David or King Solomon. 
But in the New Testament, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, guess what? The Spirit of God comes, the Paracletos, the Comforter, and he lives on the inside of you and me. And greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So that Satan can no longer roam and do whatever he wants to do. Sure, he's still the prince of the power of the air. Still, he's in charge of the world system. But he still answers to God. God is still on the throne. He's on the throne of this world and on the throne of your life. Now, here's the beauty of it. Here's the beauty of it. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What does the binding accomplish? Look at the next verse. So that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. In other words, when Jesus came and established his kingdom, we read earlier that Satan was thrown out of heaven, man. He's thrown down into the abyss. And yes, while his demons still roam and there's still work that happens, he's restricted in the sense that he cannot prevent the gospel from going out. And no matter what he does, it backfires. He thought he killed the Messiah. He saved the world. When he martyrs the church, when people give their lives for the cause of Christ, he thinks he's going to stifle the progress of the church. What happens instead? It serves as a catalyst, man, for church growth, and the church explodes when it is persecuted. Imagine how frustrated he would be. And the gates of hell or the gates of Hades, which means death itself, will not prevail against the church. That means your prayers work. (laughs) That means when you pray, God hears. And the armies of heaven follow. James 5, 16, the effective prayer of a righteous man releases the divine energy of God. It means that you might be tempted, but you can't be possessed. You're a child of God. And two entities that are directly opposed to each other cannot occupy the same house. You are safe. You are secure. The word of God does not return void. When you speak it, it's effective. It's efficacious. Strongholds in your life will be broken. And the problem is, the reason so many of us are living as Christian zombies which in reality, there's no such thing, is because you forgot that you're going to face hardship, fear, persecution, anxiety. Those things may be a reality, but they do not defeat you because he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And that's why Jesus, that's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, after he sent the 70 off to do ministry, they came back and they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy and nothing by any means shall hurt you. (laughs) Let me ask you something. Did you call on Christ to save you? At some point, did you? I mean, surely part of the reason you're here, if you're not a visitor and you're not maybe seeing what this Christianity is all about, but for most of you, I'm assuming that there was a time that you said, Lord, I get it. I cannot save myself. I need salvation. Somebody introduced you to Christ and you began to recognize your eyes were open and you began to see him for who he really is. Not just a good teacher, not just a mentor, but the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And you called on his name because you knew if you would call on his name, you would be saved. You called on his name and you said, Jesus, I know I can't be saved in and of my own effort. Forgive me of my sins, save me, make me right with God. And you did that. Now, can I ask you a question? When you did that, did God save you? Yes, he did. He forgave you of your sins, past, present, future. Not because of how good you are, but how good Christ is and to have the compassion to give his life for yours. So when you called on his name, did he save you? Can I ask you something? Is it hard to save you? I would assume yes. That's pretty hard to take you out of darkness and make you transformed into light. 
to take a person, these, these old vessels that we are, these aging vessels that are corrupt inside, come on, you know you are, I know I am, we know we are, and to save us, to put us in a position where we actually have the right to walk into the throne room of the living God. Uh, so I'm assuming that's hard. If you called on God and he saved you, then my goodness, call on him for your children. Call on him for your marriage. Call on him for your addiction. Call on him for your fear and anxiety and depression and doubt and worry. He already did the hard stuff. Call on him. Next verse says, and I saw the thrones and they sat on them. This is beautiful. Who's the they? Well, that's you and me. And judgment was committed to them. You mean, we're, we're supposed to judge? Hold on. Then I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded. There are some who will be martyrs for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark. So there will be those of us who live, who reign, who we woke up and we refuse to worship the beast, the systems that take us away and lure us away from God. We refuse to worship money and power and position. All of those things that aren't necessarily inherently evil, but they didn't become our priority. We refuse to do what everybody else does. We swam against the stream, man. We live against the grain. We said, okay, these of themselves, they're not bad things, but our ultimate pursuit, our ultimate passion is for God. We didn't take the mark of the beast. We didn't do the things of the evil one and think the thoughts of the evil one. Remember, this comes right out of the Old Testament with phylacteries. They put these scriptures on their wrist and on their forehead to represent that we do the thoughts of God and we think the thoughts of God. We do the deeds of God. We think the thoughts of God. So there are gonna be some during this time that claim to be Christ followers. <laughs> they actually are. They, down deep inside, they are. They really do pursue God. They pursue the things of heaven. They know that they live for an eternal kingdom. They didn't receive the mark. The mark they received was the seal of the Holy Spirit. And God will keep them till the day of redemption. And here's the beautiful part of that passage. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, can I say something? Are you telling me that we were once dead and we came to life? Yes. Yes. That's exactly what the Bible says. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in a newness of life. In Romans 6, the apostle Paul, the greatest theological treatise ever written, says that our death, burial, and resurrection in baptism, we were raised to live new. We've experienced a resurrection. Our eyes have been opened. We have been awakened. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. We, we woke up, but I got to tell you, some of you don't look like you woke up. You don't, but the Bible says there was a time in your life, your eyes were open. You live for different purposes, different reasons. You get fired up about different things now and you're reigning with him. Really? How do we reign? Ephesians two, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's not talking about something future. It's talking about now. How's that work? Well, where is Jesus at the right hand of the father? Does he just sit there? I don't think so. He's everywhere. It's like God says, this is my right-hand man, but it's like Jesus says, okay, I'm your right-hand man, but these are my right-hand men and women. We are seated with him. Do you know that Jesus told the disciples, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What does he mean? In a real way, we are the judges of planet earth. Now, I know that just, oh, that goes against the grain of some of you. We're not to judge people. No, no. In the sense that we present the judgment already determined by God, the salvation is found in the name of Christ, 
in, insofar as we accurately present the truth of God's word, we are the judges. We are reigning. We are judging with Christ. And so we reign with him. We are alive. We woke up. We swam upstream. And you know that Isaiah 54, now deal with this, you theologians. We deal with this one. A prophecy about the coming people of Christ. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue will rise, which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. You woke up, right? Some of you can't even wake up now. (laughs) He cannot overpower you. Do you understand that? Okay, so you made some mistakes in your life. All right, so you've got some addictions you're having a tough time getting rid of. Okay, so you had a bad family life and there's baggage. Okay, I got that. Hey, you're not alone in that. We all have a burden to bear, a burden to carry, every single one of us. And we all have sin in our life, every single one of us in this room. Paul said, I'm the chief of all sinners. We all got our weaknesses and our, I mean, for heaven's sake, I watch YouTube videos of destruction. What kind of pastor is that? (laughs) We got our issues, but he cannot overpower me. He cannot overpower you. You weep, but not without hope. You doubt, but not without certainty. You fear, but not without courage. And we strain, but not without victory. We will win. We will win. You will win. This past week, we had our first rooted graduation. We had a huge group in this place. I mean, rooted is our course that people go through that just is just life changing. You, you, you begin to understand who God is, what prayer is, how to do a devotional life. It is an amazing, and we took our first graduates through it. And I want to say to them, or say to you what I said to them. And I want you to, can you, can you give me some grace here? Look, can I say, and I know I got issues. You, we, I know we all do. I got that. But I still got to speak the truth, even if it hurts me too, right? And here's the reality of this. Sometimes I'm sitting over here on a weekend and I'm worshiping and I look back at you and you just don't look like you woke up. I mean, I'm sorry, you look dead. And a part of me wants to get out of my chair. Okay, these are things, this is the uh, confessions of a pastor. Part of me wants to get out of my chair and walk down the aisle and just pick out somebody. And let's say their name is Tim, okay? And I walk through, and I want to walk through the aisle during the worship and I want to tap you on the shoulder and I'll say, hey, I'm Jeff, who are you? I'm Tim, let me shake hands. And then there's a part of me that wants to say, can I ask you some questions? Have you been saved? Do you know Jesus? Are you on your way to heaven? Are you the recipient of the greatest gift of grace ever known to humanity? Has God not begun a good work in you? Has he not promised to complete it until the day of redemption? Are you not a winner? And if he says, yes, I am, then I want to shove him and say, then praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Now, praise Jesus. I mean, we're supposed to be the ones that have been awakened. We're, we're supposed to come in here excited. We're awake, man. We see the world as it really is. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. We should expect for there to be anti-Christian, anti-godly authorities that try to dethrone God and de-deify Christ. We should expect new religions to come upon the scene all the time that claim to be the way an angel of light. Satan masquerades as an angel of light, so it'll appear to be good on the surface, but as you dig down deep inside, you know that its purpose is to de-deify Christ and to take away the Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.